0: Welcome back to another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I am your host, Rob Walling. This week, I talk with Pete Kazanji about his book, Founding Sales. His book is one of the best books for a founder to learn to sell, and it's specifically focused on SaaS. I was very impressed with both the breadth and the depth of topics Pete covered in this book. But before we dive into that, do you notice anything weird about my voice? This is not the real Rob. This is an AI-generated voice made to sound like Rob, a Rob bot, you might say. And now, won't the real Rob Walling please stand up? I'm curious if before I called it out, if you were thinking to yourself, boy, Rob's voice really sounds odd today. Thanks to Justin Vincent of the Texing podcast for the heads up about the 11Labs voice API. I spent a little time messing around with it over the weekend, and it was just too fun of an opportunity to pass up. But just because the AI said it doesn't mean it isn't true. Pete Kazanji and I have an amazing conversation today about his book, Founding Sales, which is absolutely one of the best books I've ever read about learning how to do sales and how to hire for sales and how to scale sales as a founder. It's a really interesting interview to hear Pete's story. And I recommend checking out his book, Founding Sales. But before we dive into that... I've talked before about MicroConf US here in Denver in just a couple of months, mid-April, but I wanted to talk in a little more detail. Patrick Campbell, the former founder and CEO of ProfitWell, now the chief strategy officer for Paddle, is going to be telling his story, the story of bootstrapping ProfitWell and growing it to a exit that's north of $200 million. It's an incredible story. We've heard bits and pieces of it, but if you haven't seen Patrick speak before, he's an incredible storyteller and has a very strong presence on stage. This isn't something you want to miss. You can head to microconf.com slash US if you're interested in finding out more details and buying tickets before they sell out. And now I'll hand it back to Rob Bott. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Pete Kazanji. Pete Kazanji, thanks for joining me on the show.
1: What's up, Rob? How you doing? I'm good. Are you,
0: so you're from California, but you're talking like someone from Jersey. Is that right?
1: <laughs> no, I'm from, I'm from Southern California. So there will probably be a, a healthy helping of dudes. Maybe even a bitchin' might show up. You never know, but mm-hmm. but a lot of likes, right? So that's the, a, the Southern California yeah. in me. It always pops out. Yep. I, I lived in SoCal
0: for five, six years, so <laughs> I'm well acquainted with it. So you're the author of a book called Founding Sales. Folks can uh, get more info at foundingsales.com. It's available on Amazon, physical format. Kindle and all that What I'm surprised all the things and all the things except for audio actually because I was gonna buy I'm an audio guy
1: I know I, I get so much crap I bet you do folks well maybe now with like all the weird like GPT-3 like generative voice things like maybe I can give some some service like a five second sample of my voice and it'll just like bust out an audiobook of founding sales that'd be pretty sick so Apple Books. This is a little side jag here. We'll leave it in. But Apple iBooks, whatever the heck they
0: call it, just this week they rolled out four I different voices. Right, and it's like two for nonfiction and two. for, I don't know how the why the voice has to be different for different types, but they had they have a male and female voice for nonfiction, and that's coming for everybody, right? I personally still like uh, I like reading my own books, but so okay, my books. I, I'm just finished my fourth one, and they are like two hundred to 225 pages. That's how big the books are that I write. When I downloaded your book, I was like, okay, just kind of chill. I'm like, 480 pages? What what in the world is this? (laughs) And here's the thing. It's usually a yellow flag for me because usually books that are that long are padded with bullshit stories. Oh, I get to hear about how Intuit and IBM implemented something that has nothing to do with me that a ghostwriter went and pulled some story from the internet. Your book is not that. I want to be clear. I was actually texting a friend being like, "Uh oh, this this is a big book. I hope it's not padded. Turns out 12, 13 chapters and you cover so many topics. It's not just about sales. It's about sales materials. It's about early prospecting, outreach and demos, success. inbound leads, yeah. customer success. Then it's negotiating and closing. It is early sales management. It's hiring. It's scaling. Like on And as I saw that, I was like, oh, he just wrote two books. And put, like you wrote two books worth of material.
1: Yeah, I mean, like the thing there is where founding sales came from, we call it like the the early stage go-to-market handbook. It's not really designed to be a page turner per se. Like it's a, I don't want to say it's a textbook, but it's like not, not a textbook. And what I mean by that is like, it's, it's trying to be the thing that like, as a founder, it's the book that I wish I had when I was a early stage founder who didn't know about sales and like I'm a pretty bookish guy so I'm like hey I'll just go like read the documentation on this right like come on like I'm sure someone's written it up and I'm like wait a minute no one has right? And so, you know, ended up kind of like making it up with the help of a lot of the the network of the first round capital portfolio and what have you that my last software company, Talent Bin, was where kind of I went from being a business generalist founder to um, being an early stage sales leader. But really, it was just kind of like all the the founding sales was the amalgamation of all the stuff that I learned during that four-year process and after we got acquired by Monster Worldwide. And so... It's, it's funny, like you were kind of throwing a little bit of shade to some of the um some of the other kind of like business books or like, you know, success porn that's out there, which is really just aggregations of like a bunch of anecdotes. But like it's a very easy way to write a book. But Ultimately, like it's not very synthesized. And so the idea behind founding sales is like, no, like here's your recipe book for, because if you think about like where most founders come from, they come from like a product management background, a product marketing background, and maybe engineering background, maybe a consulting background, maybe a finance background, like fill in the blank, right? But like generally speaking, not a lot of sales experience. And so it can be pretty like impenetrable, especially considering the fact that sales is typically learned via um, like apprenticeship. If you will and so the whole idea behind founding sales is like screw that like having to figure it out as we go let's just create a full synthesis of what the founder would need in order to get from zero to that first like one, two, three million dollars of ARR before you want to professionalize the the sales organization with like dedicated sales management and sales leadership and what have you. And that's why it's like not a, <laughs> you know, it's not like success point. Maybe it's not as much fun to read as like the hard thing about hard things or, or what have you, where it's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like war stories over whiskey or whatever. But this is more just like the thing that you want to come back to on a recurrent basis or alternatively, you're like, OK, cool, I'm going to read the first five chapters because I have no customers right now. And then once I start acquiring some customers, now maybe I turn my attention to customer success. I'm going to read that chapter now, right? Yeah, I like the way you're describing it. More of a manual. Yeah, manual. Perfect encapsulation. So it's like it's it's very much like a handbook that we want people to come back to. This is why it's available online in hypertext format as well. So it can be searchable and people can come back to it. But yeah, that's kind of like the whole purpose of it. And I
0: love the focus of it, right? I mean, on the Amazon blurb says, this book is specifically targeted for founders who find themselves at the point where they need to transition into a selling role, specifically founders who are leading organizations that have a B2B direct sales model. And this book will be targeted specifically to the realm of B2B SaaS. And as I'm reading this, I'm just like, yes, please. Yeah, this is like exactly my world. How have I not, <laughs> you know, I was kind of like, how have I not heard of this before now? So I'm glad that's of the point. I mean, no joke, I haven't read the whole thing, obviously, because it's foreign 77 pages but I read a good chunk of it last night and it is the best encapsulation the best book or other material that I have read of being a founder who doesn't have much if any sales experience. That was the situation you were in with Talent Bin. I think you had to learn sales in order to find product market fit and then you grew it to 6 million ARR before selling to Monster, is that right?
1: Yeah, so so very much Talent Bin was the situation where we had a initial, you know, hypothesis that you could use so talent bin was essentially like open web uh, talent search engine like essentially what we did is we crawled like github stack overflow twitter meetup etc etc is like 10 years ago before linkedin had really solved their problem of like information density on the profile pages and so as a result like you could if you could crawl all those different websites and then kind of create a composite profile and put that in a database technical recruiters would really like that and so that's what talent bin was and it turned out that that hypothesis was correct but it was not something that people would just buy on their own. And so we had to transition from like, all right, like, you know, people will just buy this on their own, which like is not the case, never is the case, unless you're talking about like a very, very thin kind of like PLGE use case. And so someone had to go from being... Someone had to go sell it, and that was kind of my responsibility. And so I went from being our first seller to being our first sales manager, then our first sales leader. And when we were acquired by Monster, I think we had like ten sellers, like eight sellers, or what have like eight eight sellers, like five SDRs, similar number of like CSMs, and what have you. And so the way that I kind of like learned sales in that scenario was like very much like piecing it together. So I obviously read. You know, predictable revenue by Aaron Ross. But that's actually like later stage, if you think about it. Like you already have you already have a sales motion that's been de risked. And really it's just about like driving scale atop a funnel. And then of course you have like Eric Reese's the lean startup and Steve Blank's um, you know, four steps of the epiphany, or I guess it's called the startup owner's manual now. And there's kind of like this thing that's like missing in the middle, which is like, okay, cool, like i validated like you know, the hypothesis here and like maybe I have a product that has like early indications that it solves the relevant problem. But now I have to repeatedly, we're sorry. Now, first I have to get like non-zero customers and then I have to like repeatedly sell it. And then once I repeatedly sell it, ideally get other people to repeatedly sell it. And so that that was kind of missing in the middle there. And that's, that's what the book was written for.
0: And you grew and exited, and now you're working on your next startup called Atrium. It's atriumhq.com. Your H1 is tough times. Call for amazing sales management. Atrium helps sales managers use metrics to increase rep efficiency and survive and thrive in a downturn. You've raised quite a bit of money. Just talking offline, I said, Crunchbase says $33.5 million, And you're like, well, I guess that's a lot of money. I guess that's right. It, start, it starts adding up. You just lose track at a certain point, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, so so exactly. So Atrium makes what we call data-driven sales management software. It's software that helps sales organizations. So managers, leaders, and reps use metrics to improve performance. I mean, the way to kind of think about it in short is like Moneyball for um, sales teams. And really, it's kind of like the the software encapsulation of the a lot of the work that I did at Talent Bin around instrumenting the quantity and quality of selling behavior that was happening on our team, except the way that we did it back then, back then in the olden days was like lots of Google sheets, lots of Salesforce reporting and, and dashboards and what have you kind of clooch together with like meeting invites and what have you to make sure that you people are coming back and, and looking at that stuff. And what we realized was that most organizations really suck at measuring and managing by metric. I was pretty okay at it because I'm kind of a kind of a sales nerd, but most organizations are pretty poor at that. And most sales managers and sales leaders, they, as we kind of like, like to joke, like don't necessarily come from the math department or the finance department, right? They come from the storytelling department, which is fine and and so helping them you know manage by metric is a is a really powerful thing that you can do and yeah like we've been working on atrium for i guess like six years now or what have you a few hundred customers yeah definitely a little bit of a different track than a lot of the um like definitely not a bootstrap track but um you know lots of fun we get to work with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of like modern sales organizations i also run a started and run um the nation's largest sales operations and leadership community called modern sales pros. Um but yeah it's just like it's 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 all sales all the time over here.
0: I know how that feels not that I'm in sales, it's that I'm in like all bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped B2B SaaS. It's just what I think about day and night. I want to dive into the book a bit. So in a lot of, of interviews, when I interview authors, I feel like I, I think we can cover like a quarter of this book or a third of this book over. There's no chance. We're, we're going to be 5 <laughs> to 10%. So, uh, you know, obviously as a listener, if you're listening to this, head to FoundingSales.com. Check it out. But I want to bounce around a bit. So chapter one is mindset changes in first-time sales professionals. And there's two things I'd love to hear you expound on. One is, one mindset changes, embrace plenty, not scarcity. And the second one is expect to win, but be unfazed by rejection.
1: Well, I think that, um, and yeah, thanks for calling that. One thing just to kind of note for your audience, the entire book is available online at FoundingSales.com. Like it's available, you just like log in. And I really wanted it to be available via hypertext so people could search across it and And come back to it, because again, it is like very much of a manual. And you can set it down and come back to it, et cetera. So yeah, I mean, like the the concept of embracing plenty is like a very confusing concept to most humans. And in general, I think like the the sales mindset change chapter is about like, validating that what you're that uncomfortable feeling that you're feeling as you're starting to do sales is like totally okay. Because a lot of the things that you do as a seller is very, very, very different than what you would do as a product manager or a software engineer or a consultant, or what have you, or even just like a human in general, which sounds kind of weird. Like a good example of that would be most of the time we think about things like, hey, we should like conserve resources. Like, hey, you know what, like the carton of milk's not done. Right, like, hey, let's like not throw out that extra pizza, etc. Whereas the the thing that's a big kind of mind shift in sales is that the thing that you have scarcity of is your time. You don't have scarcity of prospects, and so oftentimes what ends up happening is people get really wrapped around the axle, like chasing opportunities, uh, essentially deals, like potential deals or prospects or what have you, that that end up like not. Not having your the need of the the problem that you solve, or alternatively, like maybe they do, but they're just not getting it right. And you're like, no, 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 I'm gonna get them there. I'm gonna get them there. I'm gonna convince them. And and really, at a certain point, you just have to be like, no, 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 I'm gonna you know I'm gonna set this down. I'm gonna I'm gonna close loss this, and I'm gonna move on because especially especially early on in either new category creation or early stage SaaS, there's gonna be tens of thousands if not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of prospects that could use your solution right so like that's what it, we mean around like embracing a mindset of plenty versus a mindset of scarcity so stop throwing good time after bad with respect to those prospects and so and then as soon as you start kind of like embracing that concept of of uh, abundance as opposed to scarcity you start thinking about things like oh okay cool like how can i get in touch with everybody Right. How can I scalably get in touch with tens and tens of thousands of people or how can I paralyze my meetings or or what have you? So that's the first thing. And the second thing that you kind of talked about, like expecting to win, but like being unfazed when you lose is that in general, the big kind of mindset shift with sales that's kind of hard for people to take is that you're going to be losing most of the time. Or right, if you have a 25% win rate, which is really good, like you know, if, if you win a quarter of the deals, like first meetings that you, that you take, like that's a really good win rate. Most early stage, especially in new categories, it's going to be a lot lower than that because people are like, yeah, I'm not necessarily sure I have like this need, like anywhere in the like 10 to 15% range. So you're going to be losing 75, 80, 85% of the time. Right. And so, most normal human beings, that would be like really demoralizing. You might be like, I don't know if I like this. Right. And so, that's why what you have to do is you really have to just rebase yourself and recalibrate and say, Hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to be unfazed if I lose. But the other thing with sales, too, is that we are in the business of, I forget who says this, um, but it's like sales is the transfer of enthusiasm. Right? And so we are able to impact our audience and our prospect in a meaningful way. You know, we're trying to reveal to them the unmet needs that they that they might have. We're trying to reveal to them the fact that there's a new way, a better way of doing what it is that they're doing right now. We have to get them stoked up on that and pumped. And um, it's kind of hard to do that if you're like, oh man, I'm probably just going to lose this deal anyway. <laughs> um, there's there, actually there's a gentleman who is an early sales sales rep here at Atrium, a gentleman named Carson. Hoffman is a super bright guy. And, um, he always says that sales is a Broadway play put on by psychologists because essentially like you're performing like, Hey, all right, let's get excited while thinking about like what the other person's thinking about and like how I can, you know, talk to them and like change their perceptions in a way that is going to lead them along to the, the path that I want them, I want them to follow. And so if you do that with like an Eeyore mindset or like, you know, Oh dude, like, is there, you're actually going to negatively impact your ability to achieve your goal. Right. And so that's why, like when you walk into a sales call, you have to get pumped and say, Hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to be, I'm going to expect to win this and I'm going to will that into, I'm going to will that into existence. And moreover, if I end up losing it, which I probably will, um, I'm not going to be phased by it because I probably have another meeting immediately afterwards.
0: (laughs) right another crack another crack at the plate right yeah yeah that's it's an interesting way to think about it finding the perfect software engineer for your team can feel like looking for a needle in a haystack and the process can quickly become overwhelming but what if you had a partner who could provide you with over 1000 on-demand vetted senior results-oriented developers who are passionate about helping you succeed and all that at competitive rates meet lemon.io They only offer hand-picked developers with three or more years of experience, and strong, proven portfolios. With Lemon.io, you can have an engineer start working on your project within a week instead of months. Plus, you won't waste your time on candidates who aren't qualified. Lemon.io gives you easy access to global talent without scouring countless job boards, and it's more affordable than hiring local talent. And if anything goes wrong, Lemon.io offers swift replacements, so it's kind of like hiring with a warranty. If you need to grow your engineering team or delegate some work, give Lemon.io a try. Learn more by visiting Lemon.io slash startups and find your perfect developer or tech team in 48 hours or less. As a bonus for our podcast listeners, get a 15% discount on your first four weeks of working with a developer. Stop burning money. Hire dev smarter. Visit Lemon.io slash startups. You also, skipping ahead to chapter three, sales materials basics, you go through One of my favorite things was you were talking about speed versus production value and the ability to iterate quickly on sales material. And first of all, you were like, founder, you need to do sales, right? You can't you can't outsource this until you hit a point where you're, you know, an outsource, I mean, hire someone to do it. Until you hit a point where you have repeatable sales. I think most, hopefully most people listening already know that. I've said it a few times here. But when you said speed versus
1: production value. And, bless, Rob, bless. Good job.
0: I know. I, I, you know, I'm trying to preach, I'm trying to preach the good gospel here. <laughs> I had to chuckle as I was reading because you're, sales presentations you give tons of examples like here are the basic six things or whatever that should be in it and then you gave examples i'm assuming from talent bin of like actual slides that you would use they did not look good sir they were they were really crappy and and i was like laughing because i'm like he's he's eating his own dog food here he's walking the walk because your point was like stop hiring a designer and waiting for weeks to turn around because you're you learn something this call you change the slide for next call Right. Talk us through that. A li- yeah, a little more about speed of iteration, production value, all that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way to think. I think a thing that might be helpful for your audience is the way to kind of think about your sales motion. Think of it as like a product or as as like software itself, right? And so, what you want to be able to do there is have speed of iteration, right? So, think of it as like MVP, right? Minimum viable, minimum valuable, et cetera. And so you want to be able to have speed of iteration, not just iteration, but like speed of addition as well, right? And so a good example of that would be, let's say that an objection comes up. You know, hey Rob, I'm not sure if uh, if the tiny seed route is for me, right? I think I might want to go with a more traditional. I want to go big, right? I want to go big. I'm going to go out to the valley and I'm going to I'm going to raise me a seed round, right? And, you know, Rob can talk that through and be like, well, let me let me explain to you why it might be make a lot more sense for you to do a smaller kind of like tiny seed, work with us here at tiny seed. Rob can explain that, but wouldn't it be better if he had a slide that would then demonstrate that? And so, and so maybe when Rob, and I'm sure you probably have encountered maybe that objection like, you know, two years ago, three years ago, or like whatever it was. And then every time you hear, you know, an objection like twice, this is like the rule of thumb that I like to say is like anytime you hear the same objection twice create a slide. And what it does is it creates a swim lane, right, kind of like guardrails for you where you have like visuals because humans are visual. It allows them to see something while you're talking at them and it gives you guardrails and like a map for reading, not reading reading, but essentially like a a path to talk them through. And so if you take a long time to do that incremental objection handle slide or as we were kind of noting earlier, iterating a slide or for a part of your presentation that isn't necessarily landing, well, that's a problem, right? It's like having a bug on production that you can't solve, like that you're not going to fix for, you know, a whole month or whatever. Like all of your users are running into that bug on a recurrent basis. So it's way better to trade off speed, at least in the early stage, it's way better to um, trade off speed for for the ability to iterate versus like making it like picture, picture perfect.
0: This ties into the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is in chapter seven about pitching. You talk a lot about objection handling, and there's a quote from the book. So periodically, Pete, I get quoted on Twitter. People will quote me back to myself, and I have, I'm like, I said that? Can you point to a source? So I love quoting authors back to themselves
1: because... Oh man, you're, you're, you're making me scared right now.
0: 477 pages and I'm going to quote you. No, your quote was where it, <laughs> objection handling is where some of the most important work in sales is done. And that sentence struck me when I read it. Can, can you expound on that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I, so the, the way to think about what we're doing when we're selling is we're trying to reveal need to someone, right? Like, oh man, I didn't I didn't realize the downside associated with you know, a traditional seed round. That's interesting. You've rebased how I think about things. So it's like revealing to them a, a need, an unmet need, and the magnitude associated therewith. presenting to them a mechanism by which to surmount that unmet need. Like, oh, well, the good news is there's this thing called tiny seed that never existed before. Oh, okay, cool. And the value associated with that. And then the last part is like, handling objections where someone's like, yeah, but I'm not so sure about this. Wait a minute. What about this? Wait a minute. What? A, da, 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 da. And so the good news is, is that when people are are objecting, that means they're engaged, right? It's kind of like, um, what is it? The uh, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. So in this case, when so someone's actually objecting to things that you're saying, at least they're paying attention and they're they're engaged, right? And so what will end up happening is you'll start identifying these common scenarios wherein somebody is is objecting to like the value proposition you're presenting so like let's use atrium as an example so atrium makes this we make data-driven sales management software one of the things that's super cool about it it takes like two minutes to set up you just sign into your salesforce account and like poof it creates a world-class metrics harness that then of course is continuously monitored statistically to tell you when there are problems with metrics for like this rep or that rep or whatever again it's like automated moneyball for sales teams all right cool Well, like. You can imagine some sales manager or some sales leader be like, yeah, you know, but like we have a very specific sales motion. So I don't know if you're out of the out of the box. Metrics are really going to really going to handle it. You know what, Rob? I hear what you're saying there, but it turns out that the, like the revenue formula is the same regardless of the organization. So bookings, wins, win rate, average selling price, the number of opportunities that are in your pipeline, number of new opportunities that are coming in your pipe customer-facing meetings, those are all things that matter for organizations, regardless of which organization it is. I imagine that's the case for you guys as well. Am I thinking about that right? God, you're right. I guess I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, moreover, you probably don't have all these metrics right now. Moreover, you're probably like not recurringly analyzing them. That's a good point, Pete. Wonderful. Yeah, so mo- were there other questions? And so what will end up happening is you'll start seeing these, you'll start getting this map of questions right that will recurrently come up and then so one you can have those objection handles ready two you can have a slide for it right like oh i hear what you're saying here rob let's go ahead and look at this and then three what you can do is you can start pulling that forward and you can start pre-handling those, right? So essentially bringing it forward in the pitch in order to pre-handle those, like essentially incept the person ahead of time, right? So it never even shows up for them, right? Because they're like, I know what you're thinking. You're like, if you're like some of the folks we talked with, you're thinking this, right? You can deal with that. And so, because literally all we're trying to do is like smooth the pathway to a purchase, smooth the pathway. It's like kind of like a checkout flow, right? But in this case, because it's a ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollar contract, there's not really gonna be like a swipe checkout flow. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to smooth that checkout flow as much as possible using words and pictures. And so having good objection handles is a great way of doing them.
0: In that chapter, you also touched on asking for the sale, which is a mistake I see. You know, oh, yeah. this audience of this podcast is let's say seventy-five percent technical, maybe even eighty percent. You know, developers, and we, as a developer, former developer myself, I just, just it was always felt awkward because it's an awkward oh, question, and guess what? It leads to rejection because people say no. But yep. talk me through, like, how do you get over that, and why is it such a critical thing to learn?
1: I think at the end of the day, the thing that this is something that I, I hopefully I won't get on a rant here. let's let's I can't promise though. I can't promise. I can't promise <laughs> is one of the things that drives me nuts is how people will tell folks like, oh yeah. There's born sellers, and and I I think that's that's BS, right? I think it's just practice. And so a good example, because these things, as I noted earlier, regarding sales mindset changes, these are just like not supernatural behaviors, right? Like super common behaviors. And so, but that doesn't mean that they're impossible. They just require repetition and kind of grooving that like grooving those behaviors. And like you know, once you've done it a few dozen times, right, or more than that, like it just. You've got the muscle memory going, you're calloused and like you're on your merry way. And this is why in that sales mindset changes chapter, I kind of talk about how like you actually feel this like weird psychological, like neurological changes in, in like in yourself. And so like asking for the sale is a great example of that. Uh, And then the good news is like, there's lots of ways that you can like practice these things ahead of time. Because, you know, I, I think... Oftentimes people like equate sales to you know, different athletic endeavors for good reason, because what it is, is it's these micro behaviors that are kind of like motions you might engage in like, you know, a baseball swing or a golf swing or like, you know, a, a basketball player or what have you. And they're not easy and um, they're not necessarily natural. So you practice them. And then once you practice them, you get good at them. Um, and they don't feel unnatural anymore. You just do them like you're falling out of bed. And so asking for the sale is a great example of that, like be, like being comfortable, to say like, you know, so based on what you're saying here, Rob, it sounds like you got about like, you know, 15 sales reps and no, no sales operations function over there. And so I think you had mentioned earlier that like you had a couple of reps that like, man, you really wish you had caught their underperformance earlier before you had to fire them a lot later than you had anticipated. We've shown you that how Atrium could have solved that. Based on what I'm seeing here, this really seems like something that would solve your problems. Am I thinking about that wrong or what are your thoughts? And just shut up, right? Um, And and so just doing that like lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots lots of times is just gonna make you way more comfortable. And so the way to kind of surmount that is to not, not avoid it right? like that's the worst way but just to look for opportunities to to like test yourself on a recurrent basis and so like there's kind of micro behaviors that i like to say that people can can engage in like as an example you want to get better at just like talking with folks and like creating rapport just make awkward eye contact with people while you're walking down the street just force yourself to Right. It's just like a small bit of practice. Like, all right, I'm just going to make eye contact with every person that I walk by and I'm going to smile at them. And that's going to be a micro behavior that I'm going to do in order to force myself to become calloused to that behavior. Right. Maybe a more advanced version of that is like, I'm going to strike up conversations with people. I'm going to force myself to find something that I need to be able to hook onto. Like, when we started this call, like, whoa, Millennium Falcon, look out, it's a trap, right? Like force yourself to do that. And like, lo and behold, like two months in you, like your behavior will be totally changed. And it's like a a more advanced version of that is right. So, you know, what the pricing would be for something like you guys would probably be around like 25 or $30,000. How does that feel? And then you, and then you shut up. Right. And that's very difficult. Right. But you can work your way up to it and then just do it again and again and again and again. Right. So don't avoid it. Just embrace it and just recognize that like after you do it 50 or 100 times, it's going to just be a callus, and everyone can do it.
0: Yeah, that's great. I love that. I mean, one of the, one of my personal mottos, I've said it many times on the show, is relentless execution. Like, I, I didn't become a success in two years. It took me, depending on how you define it, five years or 11 years or, you know, whatever. And it was showing up every day and doing repeated behaviors that I had to get better at. I was not, 15 years ago, I was not the entrepreneur I am today. And that didn't happen by magic, right? It happened by rote execution and just doing that was hard yep. and getting better at it. And so I really like that that idea.
1: Put in the calories. You definitely have to put the calories in. Yep. So
0: as, as we wrap up, I, I want to ask you a question. Oh, so uh, another fun side, jag. So I went to chat GPT before this just to see, I've never done this. And I said, I'm interviewing Pete Kazanji, author of founding sales for my podcast. I did the whole thing, did a prompt. And I said, you're,
1: you're frightening me.
0: What interview questions should I ask him? And it gave me eight interview questions that Basically, we're, six were garbage. They are these high level, complete <laughs> bullshit general. It's things you'd hear on like a podcast where they're they're just going through the motions, right? And that's not what we do here. Like you can tell, I dig into the material I want to hear, you know. Yeah, yeah. But two of them were actually pretty good. I think we'll have time for, for one of them. I'm going to tweak it a little bit. The question that that they had was, in your experience, what sets successful sales teams apart from those that struggle? But I want to change it up because for this audience, there aren't a lot of sales teams. There's a lot of founders, so. Yeah. So I was really thinking like, let's say that you had a situation where you have decent product market fit with your product and you have two two sales reps. They're dealing with the same leads. One is closing one in 10 and one is closing three in 10, right? So huge difference in performance. What are the one or two or three most common differences between those two individuals that you see?
1: So I think what what's funny is you kind of you prune down the decision tree of like what might be the problem there already, kind of like when setting up your hypothetical there. So the first thing, sales success is driven by a high quantity of high quality selling behavior, right? That's why it it again is kind of analogous to a lot of like athletic endeavor, because it's it's very difficult to like you know have nonlinear scale. With respect to B2B sales, because it's essentially bounded by the constraint of a human and another human, right? So there's only 40 or 50 hours in the week or what have you. So in your case, you said, hey, look, this person's got a win rate problem. They're winning one out of 10. This, this person over here is winning three out of 10. So that indicates that it's actually not an activity issue. Right? It's not that they don't have an insufficient, they're not not doing an insufficient quantity of selling behavior, presumably. Like, let's say they're both having, I don't know, like five first meetings a week or seven first meetings a week or what have you. So then the question there is, wonderful. So like, what's the issue with the person who's only closing one out of 10? So it could be a variety of things. Now we have to go upstream in the decision tree and say, okay start looking at their opportunity conversion rates. You can do this from a, you know, in your CRM and looking at opportunity conversion rates. We can do it in a more kind of like minimum viable way here. It's like, look, in the first meeting, are we revealing pain? Or are we talking to people who literally don't have the problem that we have? Because if we're talking to people who don't have the problem that we have, like use Atrium as an example. If you have a rep who's engaging with organizations with like two sales reps, Atrium makes sense when you start have like your SDRs plus AEs is greater than or equal to 10 all the way up to like 500, right? So if you have a rep and they're talking to organizations that are not ideal customer profile, like, oh, yeah, hey, how's it going there, Rob? Uh, so how many uh, how many AEs you got over there? Oh, I got one. Okay, awesome. Let me tell you a little bit more about Atrium, right? Right. Like, Get out of here, <laughs> right. man. Like, what are you doing? Right? Like, that's not ICP. So that would be the first thing is like, is need there, right? Is need there? first. Second, are they revealing, eliciting need to that person? They might not be doing a good job of that. Hey, Rob, how many, uh, how many accounting, like, you know, I was looking at LinkedIn earlier and it seems like you got about uh, 15 AEs over there at drip is, uh, am I thinking about that? Right? Yeah, you are. Yeah. Hey, good job. Good LinkedIn. Uh, slithing. yeah, thanks. Um, well, here, let me just tell you a little bit about Atrium <clears throat> and like, pu- like, you know, show up and throw up versus like, yeah. So, so Rob, how do you go about measuring their performance? Right, like um, I noticed, you don't have any sales ops over there. Are you in charge of the reporting? You know, in, in all your free time, wink, wink. Oh man, let me tell you about how hard it is. Blah, 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 blah. And then, like, and that's good discovery. And so then the next thing would be like based on that discovery, then fitting the value proposition to. The discovered pain points or discovered slash revealed pain points, and so you can break that down and see like where is the hitch in that reps giddy up, and it could be any of the above. Maybe it's none of the above right there, but the person is just a spaz and they don't manage their pipeline effectively. Well, that would show up in other indicators as well. Like, man, when I listen to your calls, you do a really good job of these things right here. You just forget to send follow up emails and like set next meetings. Oh okay cool that would also lead to a low win rate and so essentially what the, and this is where like data driven management comes in is what you want to be able to do is use metrics and data in order to interrogate like again everyone uh, I think your audience is largely developers like when you're doing a stack trace or you're trying to understand what's wrong with your app that's what like observability software is for is to help you understand like where is the hitch in the giddy up is it like in the front end like are the is the page not loading because like there's a problem in the front end or is the page not loading because there's a problem with the network or the page not downloading because there's a problem with the query where's the problem at right and so that's how you can you can kind of interrogate that on a per human basis and understand like where the issue is it's like debugging
0: debugging no but debugging anything is it is
1: debugging it is it is it is debugging i like the
0: you know the the analogy you use there yeah
1: that's super cool. Except in this case, they're humans, so yeah. they're squ- squishy and messy yep. and they're not deterministic and they don't and they don't execute the same way every time. And so like we talk about this with people all the time cuz like we'll talk with sales operations folks or whatever and they'll be like, "Oh, but I don't know how precise the metrics are." It's like my brother we are measuring humans here, right? So like our, our statistical significance or like our, our significant digits cannot be more than like the, the nature of the problem that we're measuring, which are humans right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And that's, that's something that is, you know, sales feels sales and marketing. If you're, if you're a developer, sales and marketing feel complex and scary and like a black box and they're squishy. And it's, it's all due to that. You can't run a stack trace on your sales team. You have to, you know, pull in a bunch of metrics and, and look at it.
1: The thing that people mistake is like, people look at it and they say like, "No, no, no, it's only art they're wrong. And then there's other people are like, no, 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 it's only science. They're also wrong. It is a science that, right, it is a science that is around people, again, kind of like athletic analytics and kind of things like that, right? Like to say that you can't use metrics and numbers to instrument and improve the like human behavior is, of course, like, like silly pants, right? Cause I'm sure a lot of the audience listening at home, like they probably have Apple watches or whoops or maybe Ura rings or like eight sleep or whatever. And like, you know, like numbers are our friends. Like that's why the, the Babylonians came up with them, right?
0: Right, and even if you can't do to one hundred percent, it's like website attribution, right, or like click through attribution. Sure. It, it's not one hundred percent, and I hear people online, especially people who don't want to market, are like, "Well, attribution just doesn't work." And it's like, "No, it does work. It's just not one hundred percent, but it's be- some attribution is better than nothing, right?"
1: And that's exactly the, the appropriate level of uh, of like specificity.
0: Yep. Well, Pete, thanks so much for joining me today. Folks want to check out your book, FoundingSales.com. And of course, your Pete Kazanji, K-A-Z-A-N-J-Y on Twitter. Thanks again, man.
1: Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me, Rob.
0: Thanks again to Pete for joining me this week. And thank you for showing up every week. If you keep listening, I'll keep recording. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 649.